Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to another worthy podcast, Play It Forward. Um, I've got an amazing person to share with you today. We've got Marcus Veerman from the amazing playgroundideas.org. Um, Marcus has been influencing the world in play for many years now. He's built an amazing 2,933 playgrounds in 143 countries. Now, it's hard to keep up. Every time I look at the website, it changes. So I'm always having to update my tally. And that equates to 1.1 million children influenced. Um, he's a huge, huge advocate of play and not only um, influencing the children, but giving you the resources, tools, motivation, and inspiration to take action for yourself. Um, so thank you so much for joining me, Marcus. Hey, how are you going? It's a pleasure to be here, and that's a very humbling intro. Thank you. No problem at all. So an easy start to get things flowing, as I ask all guests. Um, where did you play as a child, Marcus Veerman? Um, I think it's sort of the most enduring play memory I've got is that there was a local creek um, near my father's house where every so often floods would come through and it would undercut the the, the tree roots and would create these kind of little, um, to, to me, huge caves sort of underneath these big gum tree roots that were sort of now exposed and sort of had a bit of soil over the top and the side, but the water would wash out. And there was a particular creek, to be honest, I, I know where it is. I could find it again, but I have no idea. It's just a little creek, you know, nondescript creek in a, um, like Surrey Hills that, um, and I used to just absolutely love, I have this very, very fond memory of playing under these huge tree roots. Um, and, you know, my dad was really great at taking us, um, sort of taught me about um, sort of viewing the little things, I guess. You know, we'd, we'd go for a, a walk around the suburbs. I think both me and my dad are probably um, slightly on the spectrum and notice the little, the little details as you're walking through. Um, and, uh, you know, so just a short walk of maybe half an hour around the suburbs was always a, an amazing, you know, the things that we'd see, the insects and the bugs and the stars and the moon and the, you know, the different flowers and other things were things that we talked about a lot. So we really, um, yeah, that, it was, that's, I just kind of grew up doing that kind of thing. And I think that's really led into a lot of the work that I do now. Yeah. And what influence do you think it's played in what you do now and Playground Ideas? And if you could give a bit of a backstory of how we ended up at um, Playground Ideas for our listeners, in your own words, that'd sure. be fantastic. I mean, I think how it's influenced me is, you know, there, there is that kind of saying, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Um, but I think with children, as, adult, as adults, when you're designing for children, actually sweating the small stuff is inc incredibly important because 100%. it's the small stuff that kids notice. Like... Um, you know, I remember one thing very, very early on in one of the first playgrounds we ever built. We, um, I was working with this um, 
just a volunteer who sort of come on board to help us build um, playgrounds. And I'll go into a bit more detail in a second with Myanmar Border for uh, refugee kids. Um, we always did these beautiful murals in our playgrounds, and she started painting on the inside at ground level a little mural on the inside of a cubby. You know, yeah. like who does that? Like you paint on the, you know, the big wall on the outside so that it's kind of this big splashy thing that people see. And actually kids loved it, this idea of discovering these little things on the inside where just they saw stuff. So, yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that's led into what I do now. But in terms of um, background, so I started as a teacher. Um, I particularly trained at being an outdoor education teacher. So I spent about seven or eight years the first in my first sort of career life taking kids to the bush. And so I guess I was incredibly lucky to see something in children that a lot of teachers never see. And that is that how do children cope and thrive in open-ended environments where I'm not, I can't define all the parameters, the outdoors, it rains sometimes, it's sunny sometimes, and you've got to kind of manage yourself. That's the whole idea. And, And I was trained in that kind of methodology of, you know, giving kids a little bit of rope, um, and and giving them those risks so i think that really honed my kind of risk profile i guess of what is how how children will cope and how they'll rise to the challenge and how they can also assess risks and things like that so that was a really sort of you know in terms of my work now was kind of a very opportune start and i guess you know as part of the pathway of why i i i feel like i thrive in in this play world um and then um I just got to the point where I was getting older and I couldn't spend 30 weeks away of my life in the bush and have a girlfriend at the time, who's now um, my wife. It just wasn't really working, right, <laughs> because I was just never around. Um, and I used to just wake up on a you know, Monday morning. I got to the point where I just looked at my packed backpack and I was like, if I have to pick you up one more time, <laughs> just, you know, this relationship I had with this bag of stuff that I just carried around with me everywhere. Um so then I was really lucky that I worked on this program called Hands on Learning, which is now um, quite a big program all over Australia, but at that time I only had a few schools, and that was long-term youth mentoring. And during that time yep. I was also studying counselling, um, and that kind of, I guess, helped me um, to see kids in a school environment but doing this same self-directed, exploratory, design-build kind of projects together so we built and we did big stuff like full-size classrooms you know things that nothing mickey mouse it was real real work real contractors that we were working with and we did real projects that made a real difference in society and that reality um i think was another step along the way to playgrounds and then so i was loving that job and then uh, me and my wife got married and um, one of the things that the provisos that she said that she would marry me was that we were going to go spend a long time, um, a period of time working overseas. Um, she's always been in the sort of community development, international development sector. And so about a year after we got married, um, she said, um, I'm, I've just been offered a position in to work with uh, on the Thai-Myanmar border with an, with an organisation um, and it's for a year. And, I, and so I kind of left what I was doing, um, 
a job that I loved and really went to Thailand having absolutely, for the first time in my life, not a clue what the next step was going to be, just totally blind. And I really went into that just going, I'm just going to say, I've always had this theory that like, you don't want to just do things that people need if you don't have the skill and you don't want to just live in your little skill bubble and not grow, right? So I just kind of said to myself, I'm just going to say yes to whatever kind of was that interaction between those two things. My Where I feel like I've got actual knowledge and skill to give um, and that I enjoy because, you know, I think you've got to be driven by your passions. But also it's got to meet – I've got to be stretched because, you know, I can't – I don't want to just live in my own little bubble of exactly what I want to do. So I did a bunch of stuff creative bits and pieces um and on the weekends i was building canoes out of strips of bamboo and um all sorts of cool stuff and eventually the organization that willow my wife was working for asked us to build a playground i did that um and then a local principal before i'd finished this we were about a week or two in um just entered the site that we were working on this community center sort of site and just said i I work up in the hills up there with a group. She was a Thai lady, but I work with this minority group called the Palong up in the mountains. They've actually slowly filtered out through Nepal and they've ended up in Thailand, even though they're not ethnically Thai. Um, But we have a Thai school where these kids come from this small group that lives in the mountains. They grow this, their own type of dry rice, like nowhere else in the, in Thailand I've seen. Can you help us build a playground? And, And I was like, sure so um i got my little motorbike trailer that i had custom built um that was full of tools and i um i traveled up to um this place and i saw this i just want to describe to you if i if we've got time one one play piece was a little metal ladder that went up to a horizontal 44 gallon drum and used to go down a little slide on the other side. So like up ladder, through tunnel, down slide. Yeah. The slide was completely gone except two rusty metal stumps that were sticking up out of the ground. The 44-gallon drum, water had got into the bottom of it and just sort of patinaed the bottom so that it was full of holes, but these rusty kind of – it's just a rusty mosaic of um, kind of tetanus steel on the bottom, and the ladder was totally fine. So the kids would climb up the ladder – run the gauntlet through tetanus town and then jump out the end and dodge the rusty metal stakes that were directly below them. Risky play. Worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> anyway, so we built this incredible playground, had um, tree houses and slides coming off and, and we were able to get these sieved kind of beautiful river pebbles from the local creek that we use for softball. And that was really a turning point to go, wow, this is, this is, I yeah. really enjoyed this. It's a great project. And then, um, so I finished that, and then not long after, we had to move from where we were in sort of north-central Thailand to the Thai-Myanmar border, yep. and to cut to the chase, two years later, we built 40 playgrounds, wow. all custom-built. Every two weeks, we yep. would turn out a new custom-built playground from local materials and recycled materials like car tires, wow. um, and we would leapfrog. So. Um, just before the last project finished, we'd go and do a community consultation with the kids yeah. and then we'd move into the next one. And then after two years, we'd finish that. So yeah. that's, and that's kind of, that was the real start of what this became. Yeah. And what were the um, main outcomes? Well, two-part question. What were the children engagement levels in their play? 
because there's this thing where, you know, we know children will intrinsically be motivated to play and not necessarily on a thing. So where was that at when you went into these villages? And then where was it afterwards? Um, I think one, one, one thing to realize is that not, not everybody understands. I mean, well, I guess people in the play world understand that not everyone understands the importance of play, Yeah. but you know, in some of the communities I was working at, I remember there was one teacher who was really quite critical and sort of saying, why are you spending, I mean, we weren't spending that much money, yeah. but why are you spending this money on a playground? Like I just, he used to just kind of give me these quizzical looks, judgy kind of quizzical looks when we were building every day. And until we actually built the site, built the playground, uh, and the kids entered the space and then just sort of did their own thing, it wasn't until then that he went, oh, I kind of, I understand now. I don't mean, I, I don't fully understand what he understood, Yeah. but I guess that just the idea of that this space was full of happy, you know, healthy children whose well-being scores just went through the roof, there was something that translated that he understood in that moment that he hadn't understood before about how children tick. Yep. So, you know, I guess my my big thing is that um, – um, and I'm not sure if I'm uh, answering your question, but my big thing is that, that education is a juggernaut of a, of a thing. Um, it's, it's still about 50 to 60 years behind where, it sh where um, you know, we're sort of living in an education system where the historical effects of that are still not even close to, to giving children what they need to actually thrive and learn. Yeah. Um, and Thailand is, and a lot of, well, lots of countries in the world are far, far before that where they're just doing rote learning. So, so I guess back in those days, and you should remember, I didn't come from a play worker yeah. trained background. Yeah. So I wasn't, I certainly, to, uh, the reason I'm sort of skirting around, um, uh, I'm skirting around the, um, the question you're asking is I didn't really have a technical eye. Yeah to kind of observe what was going on with the kids. I just wanted to, at that stage, I just wanted to create spaces uh, for, I guess, for children's well-being, and to get them out of um, doing six to seven hours of rote learning every day. So really, you know, the kind of stuff that you're doing, Lucas, in Australia with schools, yeah. you know, um, it's, very in a, it's in a very different space where you're taking, you know, um, um, teachers who've got good, you know, I would say, you know, at least mid to high levels of the, the importance of play, whereas we were dealing with teachers who were just literally doing rote learning every day. And, I, and just to be clear, when I say rote learning, not, not everybody, everybody kind of thinks, oh, you know, rote learning is just I ask a question and you answer that question. It's all teacher directed. But I mean, like I've seen rote learning in, say, um, Uganda yep. where – the teacher shouts out the question with the answer. Oh, wow. And the teachers repeat the question and the answer. There is no cognition and yep. no kind of problem solving or creativity in there in connecting different parts of their brain to come up with it. Even the answer to a simple question, yeah. they just literally recite. Um, yeah, the, the, they're just, it's just recital, which is, you know, you can imagine doing, and they're literally doing that every day for 12 years. It's, yep. it's it's much worse than a lot of people imagine. And the outcomes in education in the developing world are much worse than what a lot of people imagine. Yeah. And when it comes to that, um, 
aspect of education being behind in these countries, um, you did touch on it. Do you see the similar challenges from what you're facing, the scepticism in um, emerging countries to what you get now in Australia? No, no. So, so like, I think that a, a lot of the teachers that I've spoken to, and NPR has done some really amazing podcasts on interviewing. I heard one the other day on um, interviewing teachers about this, what they call the chew and pour method, um, which is literally like the parents give permission to the teachers to basically just force information down their throats. So, and because they have this kind of perception that they're behind and they need to keep up with the West if they want to have an opportunity to go and go to university or whatever, you've just kind of got to stuff it in as hard as you can, as early as you can to make that, to, to give kids that opportunity. When in actual fact, that's just, it's just completely wrong. I think the things, say, just from my understanding in Australia, the things that concern me are that um, we definitely have this kind of, um, you know, uh, let's get children learning reading, writing, language, all these sort of, you know, these small, small set of skills um, as early as possible. Yeah. You know, we've got these kind of, there is that parenting style. Yep. But then actually, to be honest, this is really interesting as a parent of a three and a six-year-old, there's a whole other thing concern that I have and that is that some schools um, are kind of doing a, um, a play-based approach um, to try and teach some and I, I haven't really articulated this before so it's actually I'd really yeah, like to have a, converse, a back and forward about this yeah, but this 100%. is my thought right so um, I've seen children go through prep and have and and leave the other side with no reading or writing skills. You know, there's a play podcast, right? And yeah. I get it. I, I I fully. I'm actually very very much down the line of uh, say a guy called Peter Gray, yep. who he's done a huge amount of research, longitudinal research on the Sudbury Valley School. Yep. And Sudbury Valley School is completely play based, completely student directed. Um, there are no teachers. There's no timetable. The kids go all the way from prep to year 12 with no direction at all, and none of them are illiterate. All of them learn to read, but some of them learn to read when they're, um, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. And for yep. parents, that would be extremely scary. Now, that works when you've got literate, educated, well-to-do parents who've got all the resources um, and that, that um, literacy and all those other skills are being modelled at home and at school by these great teacher slash mentors in inverted commas. Um, and so they just pick it up by absorption. But there's a part of me that's kind of like, if you're going to take a kid five days a week and put them in school, you've got one job, right? And these are these, and, and your mandate is to do these kind of skills. Then I'm actually kind of okay with a bit of direct instruction to kind of teach those skills at, for a percentage of the day yeah, and then spend the rest of the day focusing on these 21st century, you know, executive function skills, which yeah. are best learnt through play. And when I say play, I mean, you know, uh, self-directed, freely chosen activity in an imaginative role play, you know, kind of context, you know, and I, when I, and when I talk about those, you know, self-regulate, self, -regulate, self 
those executive function skills I'm talking about, self-regulation, social skills, um, these broader skills that as professionals, Lucas, you and I, we need to be self-motivated. We need to regulate ourselves. We need to be able to communicate to run our businesses and be entrepreneurial and and do all that stuff. It's absolutely crucial. And that's where school, I think, is stuck in this weird middle ground where they're kind of, we're not, we're not always doing direct instruction to teach those that small set of group skills. Yeah, we're doing this kind of waffly stuff all day instead of sort of condensing that, being direct. Let's get that learned, and then let's spend the rest of the day yeah. on all these other modern skills. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's um, comes with the evolution of um, education slowly but surely. Um, looking at the freedom of information, seeing. Um, great outcomes from children around the world and applying that to an existing model. So the existing model traditionally would be very regimented, um, let's read and write straight away. But then we're seeing this uh, influence from play-based learning coming in and we're seeing all the evidence of great outcomes for play-based learning. But we've got our tradition in one hand and then we've got the progressive in the other hand and they're kind of mashed together. At the moment, and yeah, but not strategically. No, not strategically. It's right? kind of like we kind of need I mean, to do I, this. Yeah, I feel like we're kind of in this middle yeah. where we kind of just made mashed yeah. potato yeah. instead of going. Actually, let's make a meal out of this and actually yeah. got to go. What are these? What's we're, the flavor profile? And how do all these things fit yeah. together to really optimize children's yeah. learning? I think we're know? just finding our and maturity it, in in education in Australia, and we're like at that awkward teenager stage. We're kind of finding our own identity, which reflects our culture, and then. Um, acknowledging that other places in the world are more advanced. And I, I observe us slowly but surely getting over the fact that and dismissing research from abroad, like you're seeing great outcomes in Finland, we're talking about Scando countries all the time, and it instantly gets dismissed as, well, that's a Scandinavian country, it's not Australia. But for me, I'm like, well, they're still children and there's great mm. evidence around it, so we've got to um, act on that and very intentionally. And another thing is we're seeing the early childhood sector, which is very competitive um, within a commercial aspect. So the outcome of a commercial aspect is a great practice because everyone's trying to outdo each other with um, their teaching techniques, within their play standard, um, within the other facilities they offer from um, in-house um, uh speech pathologists and doctors all in the one center and then this practice improving ahead in leaps and bounds and very quickly in the early childhood sector and now that's pushing into the schools slowly but surely so Mm. we're getting the push up from the childcare, and then these the tradition of schools and these silos of reading writing and they're pushing and we're getting that squish sandwich effect and the children and i do i do agree with you i think that we i think that it's just going to take some time to kind of work these things through, but we just, I just feel like we need some really strategic, careful thinking about what fits where and what works best. Yeah. And the other thing I just wrote down was diversity. So children just learn in such different ways. So, you know, um, for instance, uh, there's a school that I know that does um, team teaching and they have, they have three, um, three prep classes and they're all in together, 90 children in together. That's a lot of six-year-olds, yeah. right? And what I couldn't understand was – and I understand we've got equity. We want children to have access to 
you know, the same skills. Yep. But then we've also got this competing thing of, of diversity, right? So just for one example, the readers that my child was given, um, you know, one of these readers, the lowest level reader on the front cover, the title had the word knight, N-I-G-H-T. Yeah. Just did his head in, right? Silent letters. There was two words that had silent letters. And he's a very beginner reader. He's actually really struggling. Um, and it, it just felt for him, like I know there's plenty of kids who will read by absorption. They'll just pick it up and they'll create those rules. Um, my son's just, he's struggling with that. And I, and I can see it and, it and it's driving him nuts, right? Whereas, um, and, you know, I, I think this is really, these these guys are really great. The Fitzroy... Um, Fitzroy Community School, yep. which has really high NAPLAN scores, very, very play-based. Um, but they also have this direct instruction model. Each day they do some very, very clear direct learning. And they have these things called Fitzroy Readers, which is their yep. own set of readers. They're just so strategically done. You start at the first reader, you get the basics, and it works up from there. And some people would look at that stuff and go, cat on, mat, sat, fat, pat, whatever – and they go, oh, this is really boring for kids. But actually, for my son, he loves it. Yeah, he's getting that he's accomplishment a, I mean, he, reflex. And but also, he just he he has that very he likes that kind of these are the rules and this is how it works. Yeah. Now, can I please go outside and play? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like he's like, okay, that makes sense. Absorbed it, got it. Now I'm I now I want to. So you only get a short amount of time with him, and I just think so. Diversity is so important with kids. That I think. Um, whether it's play spaces or school or whatever we're talking about, I'm always thinking in my practice about how do we, how do we approach, um, how do we help kids to grow and develop, um, appreciating that they're all different. And so a classic thing, I think, uh, if I can just keep waffling on, is all abilities. Yeah. Um, all abilities is done in the same way that they there's, there's very little diversity in people's definitions of that when they're designing play spaces. Well, we need ramps and wheelchair access, and that's it. I mean, we talked about this. We did a workshop together in uh, Wollongong, which is amazing, and that's as far as it goes. People, they, I don't know, they like to keep things really simple and go, okay, well, what, is, what does all abilities mean? Well, the hardest thing to deal with is wheelchair, so we better create a ramp up to the top of the slide. The trouble is then you've got a kid at the top of the slide, gets out of their wheelchair, slides down the slide, and their wheelchair's up in the air. It's not... You know what I mean? Instead of going, well, how can we actually create a space where that child can transition to the top of the slide without taking their wheelchair up there? Um, or give them give them other things to do. Um, so we, we tend to, I think the trouble is when design scales up, often it becomes this really simplistic thing. And so to finish that point on diversity, like all abilities when you wear designing spaces needs to include people on the spectrum. It needs to include kids who are really shy, who don't want to be loud, you know, slides and huge swings yep. and these other things. And kids who are, have this really deep, long, quiet, imaginative play that happens in tiny little spaces away from people or kids who just want to socialize all the time. You know, there's, I think we need to think about um, abilities in, in just a much broader way. Yeah, 100%. And yeah. for those educators listening, you skimmed on it briefly there when it comes to assessing the play environment um, for that diversity what would be the maybe the top three or five points which you would be looking for to include um, supporting all that diversity 
from an education well, think, standpoint? I think the, the, the first thing is that the playground needs to be kind of as much as possible as complex as the children, right? So if you just take your current cohort of children and just think about the diversity there, think about when you're in a class, I mean, you know, um, I think it was, I think, I don't want to misquote anyone, but I think it was Peter Hutton, who's a sort of a, uh, a principal whisperer. Yeah. <laughs> he does a lot of um, sort of support of principals in high schools to help them improve schools. And he's, he's created a, um, I think a little bit of a crazy, but a pretty amazingly um, different school that he started as a principal. Um, the school you know, with no really rules. Just, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I don't know what he called it. Yeah, but, but, uh, is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, you know, he he said something when I was listening to him once that he reckoned about sort of sixty percent or two thirds of children in any one classroom are disengaged. Yeah. So like you've got and you've got and that doesn't mean actively disengaged. You might have say you know, 10 to 30% of those kids who are actively disengaged, if you just walk into a room, you would see them disengaged. Yes. Um, but you've got that silent mid- middle group as well who are yep. just coasting along. They're not stimulated. They're not learning that much. They're maybe switched on, you know, 30 to 50% of the time. But they're not getting nearly the best that they could. So, again, so I think I'm just saying that point to sort of show that there's a huge – amount of diversity in your own student population and i think if teachers could just really just be honest with themselves and look at a look at classes look at the playground and look where the gaps are you know look at how many children are being engaged look at the children who aren't being engaged and talk to them you know where where are they being engaged and i guarantee you that you know there's a classic example we all know is the kid like me so i did my teacher's head in I was on the student leadership committee at school. At lunchtime, I was building my own furniture in the woodwork room, and I had my own little businesses. I remember um, making like little. Um, remember in the eighties when they when girls would wear like fifty little silver bracelets yeah. on their on their wrists. I would get scissors and cut them into little pieces and wrap them around my pen to make little circles and make little clip-on earrings because you know like. So they were really, really, sleepers were really cool for boys back then. And I was selling them, I don't know, for five cents or something. But I was doing all this, like, creative leadership stuff, but I was failing in my classes. Yeah. And, and I, I don't ever remember once teachers trying to engage me and go, what's missing in your life? And how can we take your cohort, you know, and, and you can sort of split these kids up into different groups and yeah. sort of talk to them about how they're going to be engaged in their work. I was an intelligent kid. I got information really quickly. I always passed my exams. And I know it sounds a bit cocky, but I would be the kind of person to just do a bit of study the night before and I'd be fine, you know? And so, because I kind of got the general gist of things. My dad was an engineer. I kind of, those STEM skills kind of were pretty natural. And I just kind of, I just kind of cruised through, but I wasn't, I certainly wasn't being, I wasn't, being given an environment to thrive in and i think that there's only one principle teachers i think just really need to stop being frustrated by students who are not doing well um and really deeply like just let just shake that frustration off yeah and go something's not working here for a probably quite a large scary percentage yeah. and that's a terrible thing to uh, to identify 
don't worry. It's happening in all schools. It's not yeah. just them. It's and nothing it's not, to do with their teaching. It's not personal as well. It's not like, personal. I've, I've done know, so many lessons with children where I'm like, this is going to be amazing. I plan for it. I'm like, they're going to be pumped about this. I get there and I'm like, guess what? We're going to do this, this, this. And they look at you like, whose idea was that? Like, not interested. And you've got to swallow your humble pill and go, okay, well, mm. what do you want to do? And to yeah. just quickly go back to what you were saying about engaging children, um, specifically for, because we've got lots of um, early childhood listeners, um, how yeah. can educators engage and get that information, what that child wants in their play environment from an early childhood standpoint? Because Okay, yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. We, so we do, we do what I, I personally think are pretty cool, um, quite deep community consultations, which are really, but still very simple. So like if I had to go say, what's the simplest way that I would do that? I would get kids sitting down. So this is my kind of like mapping exercise, yep. most simple community consultation. And I want to make it really clear. Oh, sorry. And I just, just want to touch on one thing to go back on your last question. Yeah. So there's a guy, I think his name's um, uh, Willow is going to kill me because I'm going to get his name wrong, but I think his last name is Green. And he famously said, children will do well if they can. Meaning that if you create the right environment, just I like to think about it like a plant. If you create, you know, you have good nourishing soil, the right water and sunlight, they will thrive. Um, and so if they're not thriving, we as the supporters of those children's development, I, I deliberately don't say teacher there, but you yeah. know, in a broader context of who they are, we need to think about them holistically that if that there might be certain environments where they're just not yeah not thriving if it's at home or whatever and that's hindering their ability to even access information so you know for example what's the if a child is really struggling at home and it's just too tough they're not like we know that children who are living in toxic stress for example their brains are in fight or flight instantaneous mode so they're literally their brains are configured the wrong way to absorb information that we want them to put in their long-term memory, yep. right? So you need to deal with that. We need to create a safe, um, nurturing environment where the child can flip their brain into that non-cortisol, non-stress hormone way. And if you're not doing that, you're actually like pushing more learning on them. You just, no. you're just, you're just wasting your time. And, and we, we pastoral care at schools, I think, needs to come a long way to, to really support kids. Anyway, and that sorry, diversity as well. Engaging children. That was yeah, a good point. Yeah, yeah, Again, again, it just it just comes back to diversity. Kids are all in different places. They lump 100%. in from all these different areas, and we need to create. Uh, um, um, we, you know, I know we don't like this idea of streaming them into the dummies for maths and the smart kids for maths, but there is an element of like, for instance, sorry, going way back into that story we started talked about with my son. You've got 90 kids in a classroom and they start with sometimes with this very quiet meditational kind of thing. And I'm like, you know what? Why don't you have a quarter or a third of the kids elect to do that in the mornings? Yeah. And my son and, and a bunch of other kids can go outside and wrestle for half an hour yep. and then come in and do some learning. That's He would thrive in that environment. Actually, I asked one of my teachers about that and, and he said, oh, it just takes ages to cool them down after that. And I'm like, not with my son. No. He just he just needs that on a regular basis. Yeah. Like he we wrestle hard on yeah. a regular basis before we read a storybook. Yeah. You know, 
You know, I did yeah. the same anyway. with my son. My wife's like, how, how do you get him to settle at night so well? Like, and he just goes off to sleep. I and work I say, him like I... a Kelpie beforehand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I put him to work, polish the floors. No, but we'll but have it, a rough and tumble. We'll have a wrestle. Park, I'm done. Yeah, if you've got my wife or, you know, there's lots of personalities. And again, this comes back yep. to diversity. If you if they go like running around a park before they try and go to bed, they're not going to go to bed because yep. they're, they're all up. Their heart rate's up there, whatever. Whereas me, boom, I'm down. I'm done. Yep. If I don't expend enough energy in the day, I can't sleep. Yep. My mind's just, you know, it drives me nuts. Whereas other people are completely the opposite. And I think that it's interesting that we've sort of landed on this diversity thing that it's just it's just so incredibly important to, to, to help kids with who they are, you know, yep. because we, we're biologically and, um, born. I mean, it's, it makes perfect sense, right, that you would have in any tribal group of humans – you have all these different personality types, which is what makes us powerful. That as a group, because we're such, you know, we so need other people, we we are like that because yeah, we all offer different skills. A question, but you asked when, me a question about engaging children. Do yeah. you want to get onto that, or sorry, yeah. you're going to? Well, I just to to keep going on that point. Um, yeah, sure. From, from a diversity standpoint, um, what do you see when you go see neighbourhood playgrounds and? Um, what children are. <laughs> That's a good question, yeah. Oh, look, I, you see very little diversity. You know, like um, uh, I was really like, so the, I, I live on a park. Yeah. And just as a, as a, I hope you're okay with all these asides. I'm not very no. good at sticking on one point at once. But um, I live on a park and the incredible thing about and why I chose to live where I lived and got a ridiculous mortgage to where I live where I live is that the back of our apartment backs directly onto a park all there is is like a little concrete footpath between me and about 300 meters of parkland and it is incredible when you remove a street between where you live and where children play you instantly get this kind of 1950s play till the street lights go on you get not all of it. You get about sixty percent of that back. Yeah. It is incredible. Like, like you know, on a hot summer day, out in our park, there will be sometimes twelve kids, multi-age group, all running around naked in the park, you know, uh, in the sunshine, just being completely free, or you know, looking at worms, or you know, whatever, you know, doing a million different things, and they have freedom because we've removed the cars because cars drive much faster than they used to down streets. Um, cars dominate suburbs much more than they used to. And also child density, this is a, another thing, this is a totally, I'm just going to go all over the place, but child density has reduced from about four and a half kids mid-century last year, last century to like less than two, which means that on an average city block now, you've got hardly any kids. Yep. And so there's not enough kids that when they walk to their front gate and look left and right, they don't see anyone. So they go back inside. You yeah. need enough child density to dominate the street yeah. so that cars Safety start numbers. slowing down. And we don't have that. But going back to diversity in playgrounds, it's a huge – I mean, you and I both know. It's a huge, huge issue that the poles and platform style modular playground, um, it's, not, it's not particularly cheap to do that. No. You know? like it's no. really expensive. But because it's kind of easy, you can do 50 of them at once, yep. it's kind of just dominated the landscape. And um, 
commercial playgrounds, and I should say it's not just commercial playgrounds problem, actually. Commercial playgrounds, when you leaf through their catalogs, there's some really amazing stuff there. Yeah. We just don't buy it. And I think one of the reasons is like, like so as a, a real world example, the playground in the back of, um, okay, all this started, I started putting pieces of playground equipment, like just a rope, a tire rope swing, one of our five minute tire swings hanging off a, a tree branch in the park just outside my house. The council turned a blind eye to it for about two or three years. They even mowed around a lot of these. I made a big um, teepee uh, just out of the – they trimmed all the trees in the park and I created this huge teepee that kids could play in. They turned a blind eye to it and eventually they just pulled it out. I called the council and said, what happened there? And they said, oh, I don't know. We were just turning a blind eye to it. And anyway, something had happened and someone whispered to someone and something – it just disappeared. As a result, they brought they had some funding to um, fix our playground, and so I got to see the internal machinations of yeah. that process because they asked me to. They were like, "Oh, we're really sorry. Would you like to become come on the on the community committee to do that playground?" And essentially, the first plan they showed me was just replacing the broken parts with new parts. Yeah, and so. A lot of the reason that we see these, this pervasive design thing is not because the playground companies who quote on the jobs don't have better designs. It's just because what ruffles the least feathers is putting in the same thing. Whereas if you want to make change, you've got to consult the community more heavily. You've got yeah. to push back on some things. You know, you might have to push the risk conversation yeah. a little bit further. And then that, that comes really down hard. to like maintenance schedules and their parks and um, ongoing maintenance is a priority yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the pollen platform sort of thing, maintenance people know how to deal with it with the softball underneath. And you know, there's, lot, there's, there's lots of things that, we, yeah. you know, to, it's not as simple as um, I would like it to be. But, um, you know, I so what I did to make a change there is I created a Gmail, a free Gmail address, which was like awesomeallardpark at gmail.com or something. I put little posters up, just A4 pages on the on the um on the trees in the park and people who walk past emailed in their suggestions and through that community consultation process, because most councils actually, when community members speak, they actually care. People don't think they do, but they yeah. actually really care. We were able to put in a bike pump track. Yeah. that wasn't in there before. Um, I, and then the other thing I did, which I'm really proud of is I pushed the council to powder, to repowder coat the existing playground equipment and refurbish it, which yeah. costs very little. And essentially then mobilised about 80% of the budget to replace the elements yeah. into new stuff. So we, what we were able to get was fitness equipment, which um, I just want to say publicly is often really disappointing. It just yeah. needs fitness people to design it, not playground designers. Yeah. I, I, I have it in my park and I'm getting older. I need to be doing more exercise. I've never used it. I just, it's not comfortable to use. It's not ergonomic. And some of them actually have no resistance. Yeah. So they don't even, you know, there's this thing that you kick with your feet and it does nothing. And I was like, that was probably 20 grand. 20 grand, of, easy. Of something like, yeah, maybe more. And it's actually not very effective, which is yeah. quite sad, really. But it's a big spend. Whereas I've seen other stuff. There are some other things which is really well done, you know, that, you know, like things that pump your chest, but you're sitting on a seat and it's using your body weight. Yeah. So you can kind of adjust that a little bit. Anyway. We were able to put in, um, because we had a giant sort of 
swinging the trees, I was able to advocate and say, look, the community loved that. Parents, couples, adults used to sit on that swing as the sunset in the park and canoodle. And I was like, that was a beautiful part of the playground and we've lost that. So they were able to, so they left the old swings, powder coated them, and they put in a new big, this big swing, which kind of mimicked a little bit of what we had before. So that was a really very simple process. And we, we got a major upgrade to our playground in the same budget. Yeah. Through recycling absolutely. and smart design. Yep. Yeah. And that's why oh, we used a lot of natural elements. Sorry. So we used we, that because I just asked for it. We, they just got a yep. bunch of big trees that had fallen down in storms, cut them into stumps. Perfect. So we've got all these stepping stones and, and big natural elements Cheap. and berms and other things. Cost nothing. Yeah. Oh, well, very little. Yeah. What we see in early childhood is the default is, okay, we're going to build a playground. We'll get the children's input. We go, sit, everyone sit down. What do you want in your playground? And terrible they, they question. They do a list. Terrible <laughs> question. It is a terrible ask. question. So I want, to, I want the question to get those children to give them legitimate answers yeah. Yeah. So we, and so a fair representation of what they want. Or, yeah. So we have a free downloadable um, Playground Builders Handbook yeah. and a Playground Starter Kit that's available from playgroundideas.org. You just log in and download it straight away. And, and it covers a more detailed version of what I'm about to tell you. But asking a child, even asking an adult, what's what do you want in your playground, will instantly trigger their memory reflex. This is really important. Yep. So your memory and your sort of creativity and imagination are different parts of your brain. I've actually never explained that before in such a clear way. That's <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's exactly how your brain works. There we go. When you prompt your memory, right? Yeah, when you prompt your memory, what you get is I uh, is, is statements that come from your memory, obviously. So yeah. you get swing, slide, seesaw, um, you know, Trampoline. blah, 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 stuff you've seen before. And we yeah. know that we've got this dominant pole platform, swing, slide, yeah. seesaw, barbecue, shelter, sand pit kind of thing, right? So that's what you, that's just what you get. And amazingly, I mean, I've been to, I don't know, 50 countries around the world and done this. <laughs> it is the same everywhere. It's not yep, just Australia. 100%. It's not just Western countries. You will get the same response in Kenya, Uganda, Lesotho, Thailand, uh, Pakistan, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> you've, got to, you've got to ask questions that do not prompt that kind of a response. So a place I like to start is draw a map of your community. Just draw a map of where you live. It doesn't. It can be the world's worst map. It doesn't need to be to scale. Yep. It doesn't need to have roads. It can be just a map that has like my house, my community center, my church, my McDonald's, whatever. What it doesn't yep. matter. Just draw. You know, I keep it very, very vague. And with little kids, obviously, you know, there's only there's a limit to how much they can do, but they, yep. you know, they can do something. And then I just say, where do you currently play and, and draw what is there? And I mean everything. If you play under your bed with your um, soft toys and you have some intimate little game that you play between those characters, draw that. If you play at your friend's place, what I find is that then, then you start, it starts to bring in the fullness of what children actually, their brains actually prompt them to do. Yeah as opposed to a playground. Yeah. And and then you've got this huge 
broad spectrum of activities. And then what I do is, and with little kids in early childhood, you know, the, the educator would be writing this stuff down. But in a primary school, you can obviously, depending on the age of the kids, you can get people writing down. Teachers can write their own responses. Councils can write their own responses yeah. to what they what they see. But basically, I take post-it notes and I I get I get whoever I'm talking to to then document on an individual post-it note or a torn up bit of scrap paper if you don't want to use post-it notes. In fact, I, I prefer to use recycled paper just because I'm that kind of frugal person. Um, and, I, and I get them to basically write, you know, it doesn't matter if it's hundreds of things. Each individual, and I don't mean like play worker play type, you know, because no, that can get, no. I, I get pretty kind of technical. I mean, just like, Playing with dolls, yeah. Swimming, water digging. sports, soccer, digging, yeah. And you can get super specific down to you know like it might be you know digging for worms or whatever. It yeah. doesn't it doesn't matter, right? And then I usually you know usually there's you know people are sitting in tables with groups, and I take um and I get them to then once they've got all that stuff to 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 take their own little um, stack put it in the middle of the table and read it out. So they go around the, the group, they might have, you know, four, five, maybe even six people. Um, they'll read it out and then put it in the middle of the table. And then the idea is that then the group categorizes everything. Yeah. So you say, okay, these are all things that involve natural bodies of water, rivers, yeah. lakes, you know, watching the ducks, um, paddling in the water, catching yabbies, whatever. You, know, yeah. whatever. you can see what I mean. Like all of a sudden you're talking about play that is very, very different to yeah. play ground, right? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then I basically, once they've got those categories, I get the whole group to go to each table and they talk about the different categories. And then I get the whole group, class, whatever it is, to then create categories for the whole classroom. So, you know, and you might come up with things like, you know, areas for ball sports, areas for imaginative play, areas for whatever, blah, blah, And then, and then you can put that in, you can actually like get that into some pretty hardcore data, right? Yeah. You put that in a spreadsheet and organize it really clearly, simply and concisely. And that is what I use as the starting point for a design. Yeah. So as so summary, one, we're going to draw it. Um, you're draw a map draw, of your area. Draw, Yep, you dot point it for us. So yeah, to draw get a map that of information area. from your ch children about their... Document where they play. Yep. Yeah, so draw a map of your area, document where they play. Yep. Um, split each one of those things into different types. Yep. So don't say, you know, playing in the park with kites and balls and yeah. building cubbies, right? You yep. know, split them into all, as many individual groups as you can. Then get the group to categorize those things and talk it through. You know, they've got to agree yep. on what those categories are and then get the whole classroom to do it. So you can, and, and then you've got a pretty good data set that you can work from. So that's one prong of my thing. And then the other prong, which is, and this is really chronically, sadly underdone, not by you, Lucas, but um, is the landscape. Like yeah. if there's a hill, use it. Yeah. <laughs> put a slide on it, put a running track on it create some little thing that uses that undulating 100%. space let the i mean it sounds so hippie and ridiculous but let the space speak to you 
It's shouting at you. Listen to it, right? So listen to the kids, listen to the space, and then and then put those things together. So if the kids have talked about, I don't know, lots of natural wildlife observation or something, is there a place where there are trees? Put a little bird hide type cubby house instead of just a, a yeah. normal cubby house with a set of binoculars and a <laughs> and a slide coming off. Create a bird hide that yeah. actually gives them a, a fully covered wall with little slots in it so that they can observe those natural things. Or if they always talk about the the caterpillars in this particular tree, put it next to the tree so there's and and design yeah. in a way that actually utilizes what the kids are talking about. You know, can you see what I mean? Like, yeah, actually, 100%. once you've got that data of the landscape yeah. and the kids, you've got a really, really easy job ahead of you doing yeah. a great design. Yeah. And 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 this is really important. When it comes to dealing with the council or the school leadership or the fundraising yeah. committee, you've got a rock-solid reason to keep that creative design yeah. because the kids wanted it and it was requested and it's something that meets their, their needs, right? Yeah. As opposed to just going, well, slide, you know, you just have to have a slide. You just have to have yeah, a swing. Yeah, you know, Well, parents yeah. want it. We just did one um, huge, huge space on the side of a hill. There's not a swing or a slide or anything in sight. There's nothing yeah. that you would associate with a playground in that whole space because it's a part of the bushland and that's enough. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and kids love, I mean, it never ceases to amaze me that just walking out of my house, and going down to our local creek, yeah, you know, the kids just love it. Like, you know, as my next door neighbour, I went camping. Our family next door to me and us um, went camping a little while ago, and um, we went down. We went to a lake and spent about two hours just building this mud-covered bunch of sticks. Yeah, and for the first time, I think, ever, both of the kids said to me, unprompted, thank you. You know, kids don't, you know, yeah. kids don't really, I don't know why, they don't really like to say just sort of thank you, yeah. unprompted, thank you. And the, and what, the boy next door, who's actually got a really adventurous um, couple of parents, said, this is the best birthday I've ever had. Yeah. It was his birthday. We were just playing with mud. Just, he was just, Perfect. just in bliss, you know. Yeah. Sums it up with the simplicity. And that diversity. Um, so I want to st- I want to change gears a bit, and I want to visit um, a project that um, something you've re- released and very excited about, and I'm excited about, and um, I'd love you to share with our listeners all about the big news about Noodle Cart. What is a Noodle Cart? What are you doing with it? And what's a vision? Um, so Noodle Cart is kind of an instant highly stimulating loose parts playground in a very, very tiny puzzle-like package about the size of a shopping trolley. Um, It came about because we, a few years back, we launched our loose parts play manual. Again, free, open. You can get it from our website. Just log in and you'll have it right there. You can download it straight away. Um, And it was the biggest, most downloaded thing we had ever done and i guess i've been working on play in playgrounds and we 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 used a lot of loose parts i suspect you know particularly in a lot of places i worked in we we had sand pits and you know loose things but it just showed me that the community is this huge craving and understanding now about loose parts like there wasn't 
10 years ago. You know, there's been a real shift um, in that. Um, but in terms of the people who actually did it, who created Loose Paths Playgrounds, early childhood I think is an incredible area that does it really well. But everywhere else, um, we it just sort of hit the too hard basket. Um, and there's one particular principal who gave me a real insight into that, who runs an incredible recycled loose parts play space. Um, and she said, look, you need, what you need to like, this is, she's, so this is a totally at the top. She's absolutely into loose parts play, but she's like, you need to understand how much pushback we get for this space. Yeah. So we get community members getting really upset with us on, on our Facebook group because the school looks like a rubbish dump. You know, we've got mattresses and, and huge sticks that they build big cubbies out of and, um, um, you know, cardboard boxes that's, you know, sometimes get wet yeah. in the rain. Just for they... our listeners uh, that aren't familiar with loose parts, would you like to oh, yeah, give yeah. like a really sharp summary of what a loose yeah, parts loose play parts, is? I guess a loose parts recycled play space is one that uses um, recycled industrial and other materials that are um, not fixed to the ground like a normal playground where the children can define and create their own play. Is that, Lucas, is that a yep. good description? Yep, yeah. hang on. Um, it's, you know, there, there, there are um, non-profit organisations in the UK, in America and around the world who do this kind of stuff. But, you know, to be honest, if you look at a lot of those organisations, they're working in specific schools. There are these schools that do it really well. Yeah. And it's almost always through leadership from the top who really believe in this stuff and are willing to cop the flack. Yeah. Um, and also it takes a lot of time. That's the other thing that she said to me was like, you know, when you're going to put recycled parts in your play space, particularly ones that come from factories, you need to make sure that those things are, don't have chemicals, even if they're a non-toxic thing. Yeah. You need to make sure that in the processing of that product, they don't have dangerous um, solvents or chemicals or other things, 44-gallon drums or, um, you know, whatever. Um, you've got to kind of deal with that. And you've also got to manage and keep the space clean and, you know, stuff like that. And um, yeah. through my experience with um, an incredible organisation who worked for years on this, Play for Life, um, just a shout-out to um, Mary Lou who did, you know, she was working in multiple schools creating Loose Paths Playgrounds. Um, it went out of business because it was it was actually not that expensive for the materials to do, yeah. but maintenance and management was killing the program. Yeah. Driving around in a truck to collect all the materials and keep everything updated when things broke or got tired and whatever was sad. And this is really a, a very yeah. sad thing. Um, had a high cost just just to maintain the staff to keep that maintained. Now, if you've got an incredible, you know, bunch of parents in your school, it's totally possible and I would highly suggest every school – I wish every school had recycled loose parts. Yep. Um, so how did but, that influence the development of Noodle Yeah, so exactly. So, so not not everybody has that privilege. Not everybody has the, the leadership at the top to do something like that. So, so Noodle Card is essentially gives children that high-quality, stimulating – varied endless possibility environment but and this was the one of the key things for me in a package that teachers educators councils airports 
shopping malls will actually do. Yeah. Because, <laughs> again, you know, we were talking about those kids um, who are, you know, traumatized at home or wherever. You know, it, it's you can create the best curriculum in the world, but if there are other hurdles, you're wasting your time. Yeah. And that so, so um, I guess what I see is Noodle Cart is the gateway to creating high-quality loose parts play. And my hope is that once you've got a noodle cart, sure, you might you might want some more noodle carts, but also it, I, my hope is that it opens up your world to understand that this kind of play sets children's brains just alight, you know, yeah. and you can see it. I mean, teachers, when people use a noodle cart, and I, I, don't, I certainly I don't want to make, sound, make this sound like a sales pitch, but, you know, when you see um, kids using a noodle cart, you get this 100% engagement. You open it up, and every child is instantly engaged. Yeah. They're all, they're all, their brain is firing. They see these things. It creates this, this play prompt. Just instantly turns on, and they're on fire. They're just, they're just going for it. And that lasts. I mean, we see kids playing. We, we had one school who. Um, very small school. This teacher was completely burnt out and exhausted because she was the full-time principal, full-time teacher, full-time lunchtime monitor, full-time lunch lady. Yeah. Um, she just said, look, this is amazing. You know, these kids, so we let them go and they were, they were playing. We had, we had to stop them when the kids, the parents basically just dragged them out of the space for three hours later, you know? Um, and that's because this really connects to children's deep, yeah deep learning drive which is that deeper play play yeah. drive i describe it um, to people yeah. when i'm talking about noodle cart is imagine a giant meccano set about the size of a shopping trolley and you can um break it down and completely disassemble it reassemble it in any way you can imagine um, exactly yeah so, that's right yeah would that be fair um, so imagine imagine lego meccano and um a shopping trolley had a baby (laughs) (laughs) yeah so there's connectability there's there's um in terms of what and the other thing is again is it is 100 sort of non-toxic and we we know the entire supply chain so we don't just know um that the plywood is e1 certified in terms of its non-toxic glues and other stuff but we know we know where the timber layers came from the glue, the coating, the surfacing, the oiling of the timber is completely natural. It only has three ingredients, beeswax, citrus terpene, which just makes it, the oil more runny, and um, tongue oil. That's it. And we mix it ourselves. So we, Fresh tongue. It was really important for me to have a completely non-toxic and as natural as possible yeah. product. Wood. And one thing that was re- – I've got to say this. This is really exciting. It has no in the shipping and the construction of it. There's no plastic. Yeah. So even when we get the wheels for the cart shipped to us from the supplier, it's all in cardboard boxes. Yep. There's and and what they were originally what they normally do is have every wheel in a plastic bag. Yeah. And I just said to them, I don't want that. I just want it in a cardboard box. And every single piece is shipped completely plastic free, which is really. You know what? It's not even that hard. You just no. ask for it and they do it. It's really amazing how, you know. Um, but what, uh, something that your listeners might appreciate is um, the university, I think it's the University of Western Sydney, uh, Professor Anita Bundy um, worked on the Sydney, this thing called the Sydney Playground Project for years. Yep. I don't know if you've heard of this. Do you know Do you know her? 
No. Um, you'd love you'd love this actually. So then, so they would they had a, an early childhood centre in the university where they could run all sorts of experiments, and they've been doing it for I think since maybe since since 2012. I think if if my memory serves me right, and they created these um, um, loose parts play principles for yep. what a loose parts space should have. They experimented with all this stuff, and they came up with these kind of rough guidelines and I, can I just read them yeah. to you? They're really good. Yeah. So number one is the pieces should have no obvious play value. They shouldn't be Barbie dolls no. or um, prescribed. They should be generic in their structure. Yeah. And noodle cart is that nothing look, we, we, we even looked at the individual shapes of every piece to make sure that nothing looks like anything. Yeah. Right. Um, they encourage cooperative gross motor play. Um, every piece has multiple uses. Yep. So it should, and I, I describe this in terms of connections, every piece should be able to connect and interact with every other piece and have no sort of conflict in that sense. Yep. Um, every piece should be able to be used in challenging, creative, and uncertain ways. For so sure. for me, that, that means that you need big things and tiny little things, yep. lots of different shapes and sizes. Um Number five, it should provide interesting sensory experiences. So you want the surface to have different textures and different feels. Yeah. So we have we have silicon, which is very rubbery and soft and grippy. Um, even the plywood has a, 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 a non-slip kind of textured side and a totally smooth side that you can slide down. Yeah. Um, and then we have a light, soft, flowy fabric that if you throw it in the air, it'll sort of float down. And then we have a heavy, dense canvas that you can kind of stick up like a tent and it'll yeah. kind of stick there. Yeah, so and it has another point under that. So interesting sensory experiences in terms of touch and the way that those pieces move in the air or in the in the um, space. Yeah. Um, and the last one is that it should have inherent – that inherent hazards can easily be seen and managed by the child. Yeah. So there's no sharp nails. There's no – toxic chemicals that can't be seen by yeah. the child so they wouldn't touch those things yeah. um so they can take risks which can be seen and Manage assessed by the child and you know um they can take that risk when they choose yeah. but they don't have hazards which are things that the child will not assess will not see and can hurt them yeah. unexpectedly does that make sense? Yeah. yeah so that, I, I just really, I really love that yeah. set of six things. And um, where can people, I know you've got um, also an amazing documentary that will be released soon. Um, oh, yeah. So, the, yeah. So the 23rd of Feb at the Nova Cinema, we have been uh, given the amazing award that we've been accepted in, uh, um, into the film festival. So 23rd of Feb at 2 p.m. Yeah. Um, the Nova Cinema, you can book tickets now and you'll see – uh, Noodle Cart, you know, obviously I have a non-profit background working with um, refugees. So Noodle Cart was developed um, with two things in mind for, um, you know, uh, wealthy, privileged schools to create these super stimulating environment to yeah. enhance children's learning and development. Um, but it has this second very important prong of being a flat-packed, shippable, anywhere tool for NGOs and the UN and organisations like that to deliver to refugee camps because it's hyper robust, yeah. uh, very strong and very um, and it's flat packed so they can kind of ship it easily yeah. on a pallet. Um, anyway, so so the the movie is the story about us trialling the noodle cart 
and you'll notice that it's quite different in its iteration because yeah. it was an early prototype. Yeah. With Syrian refugees um, who've walked mostly from uh, Syria to Lebanon and they're in these yeah. very, very desperate informal refugee camps and we went and delivered noodle carts to those children. It's the story of how we developed noodle cart along with the feedback from yeah. those children and communities. I'm looking forward yeah. to that one. And if people go on, what website can they find the noodle cart? Uh, so they can go to uh, noodlecart.com and it's sp- noodle is spelled the German way. Okay. And there's YouTube videos where you can see instructional um, tests of us running it with Australian schools, all schools around the world. Yep. And um, uh, lots of information. Um, and all they can just, they can just give me a call. Um, we've got it our, uh, um, if they send us a, an email, we'll give them a call back and have a chat to them, any school who, who's interested. Perfect. And for Playground Ideas, we've got playgroundideas.org. Um, I'd encourage yep. everyone to go check out the Loose Parts Handbook um, and the Playground, the Builder Playground Builders, Builders Handbook as well. Handbook, um, yeah. And, and there's, there's seven other manuals. So there's yeah, a, there's yeah. a lot on there. There's Sorry, I should lot. say, we're, we're actually just about to release in the next probably month two new manual, manuals, um, and one of them particularly for you, for your listeners, would be the um, Nature Play um, handbook in how to create low-cost, stimulating natural elements to augment what you've already got. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that's us, Marcus. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for My your pleasure. insight and sharing your expertise and mostly your passion in advocacy and um, playing it forward to so many children across the world. Not many people you could meet that could say they've impacted over a million children's lives. So it's something I aspire to do. Um, so thanks for the inspiration as well. And thank you so much for your time today. Uh, my pleasure, Lucas. And um, you too, you're doing a great job. Appreciate it. Okay. Um, all of those website links are going to be in the show notes. So don't feel you have to go and spell out words. Um, also follow Playground Ideas on Facebook and Instagram for your inspiration. Um, Thank you so much. Look forward to you joining us again for the next Play It Forward.